Shannon Bream on the Brett Kavanaugh battle, Franklin Graham and the emergency response to Florence, and the Annie Moser's band performed. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Filby. And now, here's Mike Huckabee. We're going to have such a good time tonight. Audience is just wired up. I think we must have given them some type of medication before they came in here. And before I get started, I got to say a happy birthday to Lori Sykes, who is the bass player for Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. Wonderful bass player, great person. Happy birthday, Lori. All right, so just when you thought the desperate attempt to block the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh could not get any lower, it did. The Kavanaugh nomination was backed with more documents of support than the previous five Supreme Court nominees combined. There were over 30 hours of televised public hearings and 65 meetings with individual senators. Now, there would have been more meetings but many of the Democrats refused to meet with the judge because they decided they would vote no, even if Judge Kavanaugh had been a clone of Moses and brought his opinions down from Mount Sinai on two tablets of stone. <laughs> but despite the fact that he's been undergoing intense background checks all the way back to 1993, when he was working in the federal government, he went through a grueling confirmation to be seated on the Court of Appeals. A relentless effort has been made to find something, I mean anything, to give a reason to oppose him. Some of the points of the opposition were so silly that we mocked them here on this show. Like, uh, like that his name Brett wasn't a good name for a justice, or that he spent too much money on baseball tickets. But this week, Senator Dianne Feinstein announced that she had given a super-duper secret letter from an unnamed and unidentified female source who claimed something, or we have no idea what, something had happened when they were in high school. <laughs> and since Judge Kavanaugh went to an all-male Catholic high school, it could not have been a classmate. And... And nothing about this ever appeared in the many years of his being hired to teach law at Harvard, to work in at least two, maybe three presidential administrations, serve with a special counsel, and be appointed to one of the most prestigious and visible courts in all the country, even before the Supreme Court. Now, Feinstein supposedly had the secret letter since July from the unnamed and unknown person about an unknown and unnamed issue. But not even in her private meetings with the judge did she ever mention it until it appeared that not even Cory Spartacus Booker could stop him. <laughs> so, what is it that he did 35 years ago when he was in high school that is just now surfacing? I don't know. But if Senate Democrats pursue this without some videotape and a stack of sworn affidavits by angels right out of heaven, they're gonna look more ridiculous than when I dressed up like Batman on my 60th birthday. <laughs> Hope we don't have those photos anywhere. <laughs> but if the new criteria for political appointees is to have some bottom-feeding scavengers take anonymous allegations from a person who says nothing for 35 years and then secretly hands them to a senator, let me tell you something, I need to come clean on some things that I just need to confess, should I ever be appointed to anything but the president? You see, when I was in junior high, <laughs> I didn't wash my PE uniform for over two weeks one time. <laughs> I also dropped a fork under the table in the high school cafeteria, and I left it there, and I didn't pick it up. <laughs> I think it's probably still there. And I took a girl on a date once to a Mexican restaurant, and when she went to the restroom, I took a bite out of her enchilada. 
And during a standardized test in fourth grade, I used the number one lead pencil instead of the number two lead pencil. <laughs> and I'm ashamed to say this, but out of sheer rebellion, I tore off the tag to my pillow when I was in the 10th grade. <laughs> Look, I get it. I know that you are no doubt shocked and ashamed of me, and I just hope you can look past these horrible things and still respect me. But I want you to know, I'm a different person now. When I take a bite out of my wife's food, I do it right there while she's watching. And I not only pick up dropped forks, I even wipe them off before putting them back on the table. And I haven't torn off a tag from a pillow or a mattress since the 10th grade. So there, it's all out there now. Well, most of it. The rest, I'm just gonna wait until after weeks of investigation, scrutiny in public hearings, then someone I knew in high school might remember something that I forgot. But all seriousness, the good news for me is that if I've forgotten most of my sins, but better than that, God has forgiven them. Even if the Democrats in the Senate won't. Well, I was in Washington, D.C. this week, and I had the pleasure of taking this whole Kavanaugh circus business to a higher authority, at least journalistically. Shannon Bream, she's the chief legal correspondent at Fox News, as well as news anchor of Fox News at Night. Here's her take on the battle over the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. Let's talk Supreme Court. The Kavanaugh hearings, I think most people would say they were a little bit of a circus. Were you surprised at the uh, level of maybe animosity and mm -hmm. shenanigans that went on? This is the fourth confirmation that I've covered, and there's never been one in the four that I've covered that's been like this from the moment that the chairman started to speak that there were interruptions from the dais. There was clearly a coordinated plan to slow down uh, or disrupt the um, confirmation hearings, but also in the audience. I've never seen that level of uh, protesters. <laughs> I mean, one after another. In the beginning, the Capitol Police, they did a great job, but it was almost as quickly as they could get someone out, the next one stood up. That continued for four days. So what was the point of that? I think a lot of people are asking that question now, and I would bet nearly everything that I have on this planet that not one vote changed to yes or to no from those hearings. You do need to have this open forum. The public deserves to see this person answer questions and to be publicly vetted. But you mentioned it being like a circus. Lindsey Graham at one point said, I'm here to defend circuses because those are fun and you can take your kids. So there was a feeling across the board that it was really a, a lot of smoke and heat and fire, but I don't know that it informed a single vote. Well, and at least in a circus, there's popcorn and can uh, cotton candy. There yes. was neither. It was it there was are no snacks a, inside the hearing room. No, it, it, it just was a complete waste of, of time and money. What happens now with the Kavanaugh process? Well, even with the hearings wrapped, I continue to get things from both sides saying either he's the worst person and everyone in America is going to die oh. if he's confirmed to the bench or they didn't land a single punch and he goes into this untouched. So committee vote next and then the full Senate. What's the date this will wrap up? Their goal, I think, on the Senate side is to get it done by September 26th. Uh, the court is back in session, officially hearing arguments October 1st. So they want to give a couple pad days to make sure that he's done and gets on the bench. But you know, they're reading briefs all summer. They are going to vote on some things about cases that they'll hear. He's not going to be a part of that process now, but he's going to have to be on that bench Monday morning, fully read in and ready to ask questions when they start hearing those cases, if he makes it through those two votes. People who knew him best, fellow judges, some who openly identified themselves mm -hmm. to be liberal, came out and I thought rather generously supported mm -hmm. Judge Kavanaugh. Yeah, and it's interesting because we talked to one of the uh, folks who was a witness on his behalf. He's a liberal leftist Yale law professor who stuck his neck out and wrote this op-ed saying basically, this is the best possible nominee you could hope to get from a Republican president because he doesn't advocate from the bench. This professor got so much pushback and so much heat. We had him on the show. I talked to him about it. And um, he said, well, I, I felt like I had made the right case and the right decision. I'm not bothered by it, but there was so much reaction I didn't anticipate. I saw the interview that you did with the Yale professor. I thought it was great, and I loved what he said. He said, that's what professors are supposed to do, mm -hmm. is profess. Um, people seem to want to say we need a conservative justice, mm -hmm. we need a liberal justice. Don't we just need somebody who is neither mm -hmm. conservative or liberal? 
but who says, this is what the Constitution says, I'm going to look at the text and I'm going to try to play mm -hmm. it straight down the line. Yeah, and that's what judges, I think that's what the founders thought the role of the judiciary would be. They weren't supposed to be a co-equal branch with the legislative branches and body. And so I think a lot of folks on Capitol Hill, Ben Sass, uh, Senator Ben Sass, speaks to this very well and he says, uh, these things are now out of balance from what the founders intended. So people, if they can't get things passed legislatively, they're looking to the courts to legislate things for them. And whether you're on the left or the right, if you say you want a totally neutral judge and judiciary, then what you want is somebody who is gonna call balls and strikes and is not gonna decide something in your favor simply because they're on your side. Uh, and that's what a lot of folks have said about Kavanaugh. He was asked at the hearing, have you ever authored a decision that you disagreed with or that upset you? And he said, of course I did, because if you're not, legislating from the bench, if you're not coming to it with a certain agenda, you are just reading the law as it's written. And he said, it's not my job to rewrite it. That's for the legislative body. If folks don't like it, go lobby there. There's been a lot of uh, controversy over the New York Times editorial by the anonymous op-ed writer. Are there any legal repercussions that could come first to the writer of the op-ed, uh, and maybe less so, but are there any that could come to the New York Times for having published it? I think that without revealing national security secrets, I think that there are probably limits on going after this individual. But you have to ask whether they signed any kind of non-disclosure agreement. What exactly did it cover? Did it cover disparaging the president or the administration? Um, so there are some things we'd have to know who the author is to see what kind of trouble they may or may not be in. Um, I think the New York Times very much thinks that it's doing a public service when it does these kinds of things. Uh, I don't think that they would have done anything they thought would get them in serious legal trouble. I mean, there are, are continual fights over trying to flush out sources and those kinds of things. But I think that they would go to jail over this to protect the person. And sometimes that's how you have to treat sources. And I would even concede that legally, I think they're protected under the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. But is there an ethical issue whether or not a major newspaper should publish something that is anonymously written, but not even identified to the point, you don't know if this is a person who works actually in the West Wing mm -hmm. or if they work in some uh, third tier office in uh, Nevada mm -hmm. working for the EPA. We just have no mm -hmm. idea. Their argument is that this man is not legitimately the president or there are questions about that or that he's not fit to be president. And if they're operating from that viewpoint, I think they think they've got an ethical obligation to expose whatever truth they can from the inside, the resistance from the inside. And I think other media outlets would argue just the opposite, that it creates um, tension and, and potential undermining of the administration in a way that's not helpful. Well, I think it's helpful to have someone who is an attorney and who uh, understands the court to be able to help interpret it for Fox News. And what a delight to have you with us now. And we love having you on our show, too. I mean, when we hear the governor is on deck, <laughs> we get very excited about it. So that's good to, to hear. You. Yeah, it's the truth. Thank you, Shannon. Our thanks to Shannon Bream and her insights on the Brett Kavanaugh proceedings. Be sure to watch Shannon on Fox News at night and follow her on Facebook and on Twitter at Shannon Bream. Keith, we've got a great show tonight, so why don't you go ahead and give everybody a little bit of a rundown. Oh, you've got it. Up next, Franklin Graham joins us by satellite to discuss emergency relief plans for Hurricane Florence victims. Then, Ollie North defends the Second Amendment. And later, the Annie Moses Band performs. Lots more Huckabee is on the way. Well, if you visit MikeHuckabee.com, you're going to discover nearly all of the hidden results of those who are just having a fit because President Trump is in the White House. They're not happy that poverty is shrinking and middle class income has hit a new high. Be sure to drop by for that story and much more that you're not going to hear from mainstream news. And you can follow me on Twitter at GovMikeHuckabee. When you do, I promise two laughs and a large grin with every post or you get your money back. Well, Hurricane Florence was on the minds of every one of the mid-Atlantic states this week. Mandatory evacuations took place in dense population centers across the eastern coast. Now Florence has made landfall, and while not a Category 5, the resulting wind, water, and damage is certainly taking its toll. Joining us now to discuss a response plan to assist those most broken by this massive storm is the head of Samaritan's Purse, Please welcome, by way of satellite, Franklin Graham. Franklin, I know that this is an incredibly 
hectic time for you and all the volunteers of Samaritan's Purse. Give us an update on the efforts to uh, to assist those out there on the East Coast. The roads uh, are, many areas are impassable. Uh, there's flooding that's taking place. So it's gonna be very difficult uh, to get in, but that's what we're planning. We're planning to be there for the long haul, we, maybe weeks, maybe even there uh, for months. But we have to wait till the water go down. We have to wait till the roads are clear. Franklin, when you see one of these big storms headed your way, what can you do in advance of the storm in staging supplies and materials, certainly out of the way of the actual damaged area? But how do you begin to prepare when you see it coming? Well, first of all, we have a large warehouse here in North Carolina, and it's uh, stocked with all the equipment and supplies that we need. So when a hurricane comes, if it's going to be a rain event like this one, uh, we support our trucks uh, with all the, of the material that we need to respond to a flood. If it's, uh, if it's going to be a wind, uh, we, we, we stock our trucks a little bit differently. Uh, we're ready to go uh, whenever, and we'll be, we'll be there with the appropriate material. Franklin, I know that uh, Samaritan's Purse was months in the Texas area after Hurricane Harvey, an extraordinary event. And uh, uh, what you guys did was not only provide physical assistance, but spiritual. Looking at these two storms, Florence and Harvey, uh, what are the similarities? What are the big differences that you're seeing so far? Well, right now I see a lot of similarities and not a whole lot of difference. But right now this is a rain event and it's gonna be a major rain event. And of course it's hitting the uh, southern part of, uh, or excuse me, it'd be hitting South Carolina, the southern part of North Carolina uh, with all of this water. And then it's going to come up into the mountains where we live. And then you've got all this water coming into the mountains and it will be going back down into the Piedmont area. And it's going to be even, it's like a double whammy. So it's going to be very difficult for the people in the lower part of South Carolina, very difficult. Tell us, how does Samaritan's Purse bring not only physical but spiritual assistance to people who've been through something traumatic? Well, first of all, I think it's important that people know and understand that God is not mad at them. A lot of times when uh, a person experiences a storm, they think, well, God must be judging me for something I have done. And I don't believe that, uh, Governor. Uh, I believe all of us go through storms, different kinds of storms in life. But in the midst of those storms, uh, God is still there. I remember Jesus Christ himself went through a storm on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And that storm was so violent, the disciples had given up hope, uh, thinking that they would drown. But yet uh, Jesus was in the boat with them. But we take chaplains with us from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And these are chaplains that have been trained uh, for crisis. And so when we go in with our teams to work on a person's home to help clean it up, mud it out, uh, cut the trees off their roof, we have chaplains there to work with the, the homeowners, to, to pray with them, to counsel with them, to talk to them. And uh, we're able many times, the governor, to, to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ that have never trusted in Jesus Christ. And it's a great opportunity for us to not only just love, love on them, but to witness to them, and then to bring the practical help beside the spiritual help. Let's talk about the volunteers of Samaritan's Purse, because uh, th this requires a lot of manpower. You have employees, but you also uh, bring together thousands of volunteers from all over the country. How does a person become a Samaritan's Purse volunteer, and how will you use them and employ them? We'll need a, a pipeline uh, full of volunteers, because we're still in Texas after Hurricane Harvey. We're still down there working, and we'll be there probably for another two, uh, at least another two years. Hmm. Uh, so we need volunteers who are willing to come in for a weekend, uh, for a week, e even for just a, a day. Uh, and they can go to our website, uh, SamaritansPurse.org. And th there will be a link where you can click on to see how you can respond, whether you want to help financially or whether you want to, to come yourself and uh, put a pair of work gloves on and actually be a part of a team uh, working uh, to help somebody uh, uh, clean up their home. But we need, we need an army of volunteers, and that's SamaritansPurse.org. Well, Franklin, I want you to know this morning, first thing I did when I got up, I went to the website, SamaritansPurse.org. I made a contribution because uh, I believe that's what all of us should be doing. Thank if you, Governor. we can't physically go, we should make a contribution. And I hope others will join me in Thank what you. I've done today. 
thank you so much, Franklin, for being with us, and thanks to your heroic team going in thank you, Governor. to meet all the needs of the citizens who are caught in this hurricane. We're so grateful to have you here. We know that mm -hmm. things like food, clean thank water, you, medical assistance, temporary shelter being provided through the efforts of Samaritan's Purse, but this is a chance for all of us to practice what Jesus encouraged. Love your neighbor as yourself. So call the number on your screen. Go to the Samaritan's Purse website. It's listed right there on the screen. Any amount can make a major difference, especially when it's joined by others who open their hearts. All right, Keith, tell us what's ahead on the show. Well, coming up, we've got headlines with a punchline. Holly North's answer to gun violence and a sneak peek of unbroken path to redemption. Huckabee's back in 60 seconds. I hope you'll stop by and be part of our studio audience like these folks are. And do it this fall, because you're going to meet guests like members of Congress, as well as folks like Sean Spicer, comedian Michael Jr., and a special reunion with Russ Taff and the Imperials. We'll also have the always entertaining Dennis Swanberg. Now, if I were you, I'm not, of course, but if I were, I'd go to HuckabeeTix.tv right now and reserve your free seats. And did I say free? Yes, I did. Free seats. So I look forward to seeing you in person right here in our theater in Nashville. Well, whether it is a dog with a unique sense of fashion or a sly, slice-by-slice, cold-cut thief, we've got the news that might have passed you by on the segment we call In Case You Missed It. Yes, my friends, leading off tonight, has Google's leaked internal video of its response to the election of President Trump taught us anything? If you were looking for a fair and balanced response, you were on the wrong internet teeter-totter, friends. <laughs> Their left-leaning culture and whininess was on full display. I mean, you would have thought they were reacting to Marx or Lenin's death. And I don't mean Groucho or John. But the folks at Breitbart News who have suffered unmercifully at their silicon hands also reminded folks that this video should not have been a shock, especially when you look at their past history of conduct. For example, they listed Nazism as an ideology of the California Republican Party back in May of this year. House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy called them out on that one. Second thing, psychologist Robert Epstein of the American Institute for Behavioral Research issued a report that alleged that Google manipulated search results in 2016 that potentially might have shifted up to 3 million votes. Now, couple that with Judicial Watch's study that revealed that there were 3.5 million more registered voters in the U.S. than there are living people. <laughs> and you've got quite a potential voting fiasco. If Robert Mueller were as interested in Google meddling with the election as he is Russia, some Google execs would be under indictment right now. And the third thing, Google, through its YouTube service, censored Dennis Prager and his online videos for PragerU. Prager subsequently sued them for violating his First Amendment rights. Now, there's so many more examples that we just don't have time to even cover. So the question is, now that they and their intense bias towards conservatives and traditional values have been shown publicly, will they be willing to serve as an objective source for anyone's online use? No bias, no censoring, no whining. Well, I wouldn't Google it <laughs> or bet my life on it if I were you. And from our Ham Today Gone Tomorrow file, Eastern Ohio authorities report that a supermarket employee in the town of Bolivar has been charged with felony grand theft, could even face some jail time. What was the crime? I know you want to know, so here it is. County Sheriff Deputy Bran Hale said that an employee of the giant Eagle grocery stores had been eating three to five slices of deli ham a day for over eight years. The value of the ham added up to over $9,200. Talking about pigging out. But the thief was a bit ham-handed and got caught due to an anonymous tip. 
I'm thinking it was somebody who got ticked off that the deli was always out of ham. That's my thought. Well, this lady thief took the old adage seriously. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Here's what we know is that this paid ham rustler also took time to consume an occasional salami slice as well. My gosh, is nothing sacred anymore? Not even Italian cold cuts. Well, if the ham hog ends up doing any jail time, I'm betting this, she ain't gonna be working in the kitchen. In the meantime, in the words of a familiar cheer I grew up with in Arkansas, woo pig suey, yeah. Well, I love dogs, and quite frankly, I wouldn't live in a world without them. Dogs are better people than humans are most of the time. Think about that for a minute. My own dogs make me laugh, and they give me a whole lot of joy. But sometimes, it's someone else's dog that just makes me laugh. A gentleman from Long Island, New York, decided to take a nap, but he removed his dentures because his gums hurt. He woke up from his nap to find that his daughter, Eunice's dog, had decided to audition for the role of McGruff the crime dog. And hey, if you're gonna take a bite out of crime, you need some real choppers. <laughs> so the Shih Tzu Chihuahua mix named Maggie grabbed the dad's dentures off the counter and proceeded to try them on. The father looked high and low for his teeth only to find them under the living room table with his daughter's poochie flashing a familiar smile, his own denture grin. Well, Maggie's photos went viral. And as you can already guess, their little dog is smiling ear to ear. And why wouldn't she with that enhanced look? Turns out that Maggie doesn't need that look from a Stephen King novel that she's just as cute with her own smile. So dad ended up with a brand new pair of dentures from his daughter that weren't all dogged up. I'm sure he did get some new ones. How many of you would like to wear dentures that your dog used to wear? And now his gums feel better and Maggie has become a worldwide celebrity of a canine. I bet she gets a reality show very soon, maybe called Maggie the Doggy Dentist. Could be. Well, folks, that's all the headlines, but we promise to keep reading the news so you don't have to. In 2014, moviegoers saw the inspiring story of Louis Zamperini, an Olympic runner who became a prisoner of war as depicted in the film Unbroken. But when the war ended, his battle really just began. Our correspondent, Juan Garcia, gives us a sneak peek into one of the greatest stories of redemption this side of the Bible. Bless you, Louis. Welcome home. All of Torrance was praying for your safe return. We're at the red carpet premiere for Unbroken Path to Redemption, a film that chronicles the second leg of Louis Zamperini's remarkable journey. I'm so excited, I'm so honored, I'm so humbled to be a part of such an incredible true story. You're Louis Zamperini, aren't you? Thank you. For what? For preserving the free world for silly girls like me. The first movie told the story of my father, Louis Zamperini, up to a certain point. It took it from his childhood to his athletic career, his time in the military, and it ended with him coming home. Now, Unbroken Path to Redemption picks the story up from there. Once he's come home, he brought something with him. And of course, it all changed one day when he walked into a tent meeting in downtown Los Angeles and heard uh, Will's uh, grandpappy uh, preach the gospel. Here tonight, there's a drowning man, but there's a lifeline. Just reach out. He preached with a sense of urgency. He did it with authority. He was committed to the Word of God. It recommitted to me some of the basic principles of my granddad's mm -hmm. uh, message. What God did back in 1949 was real. So what does it mean for veterans watching? Hopefully, uh, it, it's gonna show them that there are people out there that care about them and yeah. want to raise awareness for uh, what they're going through. There's such a rich tapestry in this film of, of Lou's life. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's intended for anybody who wants to feel inspired. These men did terrible things to you. What are you gonna say to them?
How awesome to see Billy Graham's grandson, Will, portraying his grandfather in a movie with such love. Be sure to see this story of Louis Zamperini's incredible journey to faith. It's going to be in theaters starting this weekend. Already there. You can find out more at unbrokenfilm.com. It is a story everyone should experience. All right, Keith, I know we've got some more great guests ahead. I'm going to let you tell the folks what we have coming up. I would love to. Coming up, NRA President Oliver North reminds us why we need the Second Amendment. Then the music of Annie Moses' band. And Mike has some distinct thoughts on the weather coming up on The Wrap. Huckabee will be right back. Historic Senator Daniel Webster once said, hold on to the Constitution, because if the American Constitution should fall, there will be anarchy throughout the world. He truly understood its power and importance, and I hope you will too. I want to encourage you to join Hillsdale College for their free online course on our Constitution. I'm not sure that ninth grade civics is taught much these days. Most Americans could certainly use this course. We all could. Visit them online today to register. It's a free course. All the information right there on your screen. My next guest is a combat-decorated Marine, a White House advisor to President Reagan, a best-selling author and TV host. He even holds three U.S. patents. What does he do in his spare time? Well, how about serving as the 66th president of the National Rifle Association of America? Please welcome Colonel Oliver North to the program. Colonel, let's talk about uh, your tenure as president of the NRA. Not exactly a job that I saw you taking, but I'm sure glad you did. <laughs> well, it was a surprise to me. I, I was invited to, uh, the, to take the job while we were down in Texas for our annual meetings. And uh, the leadership came to me and said, uh, we need you. And I'm a Marine, so I'm, I'm always up for a good, clean fight. And I think we've got one. We've got the NRA under attack like it never has been before. Uh, we've got uh, not just personal threats and physical intimidation, we've got extra legal coercion being worked against the NRA by the governor of New York and a whole bunch of his regulators using the coercive power of the state to deny the NRA its First Amendment rights. Uh, they've actually launched a, a d operation to literally destroy the organization. And the governor has said he wants to ruin the NRA, destroy it, and bankrupt it. So. We've got a fight on our hands like we've never had before. And of course, we're right in the middle of a political season. We're doing our very best to preserve a Second Amendment majority in the House of Representatives. We've got a, a judge that we're hoping is going to become the justice of a Supreme Court. So it's been a busy time, Governor. Well, Colonel, you talked about how New York has specifically targeted the NRA. And it's not just the NRA, but it's anyone affiliated with them, with banks that do business with the NRA, with any company, whether it's a car rental company or an airline. I mean, this is uh, a form of economic terrorism, it would appear. Well, there's no doubt about it. And it's not just the, the folks at the NRA, you're right. It's, it's credit card companies, it's banks, it's insurance companies, it's all the affinity companies with whom the NRA has done business. And that's why I say it's, first of all, extra legal, it's coercive, it's the kind of thing you'd expect that a court would say, this is unconstitutional. We believe in the Second Amendment, but we also believe in the First. And they're using the First Amendment against us. We're telling the truth with it. Are you going to be able, you feel, to, uh, to legally push back uh, and, and to win against this? Because if you lose, it's not just the NRA. It's any organization that finds itself afoul of uh, the people running whatever the latest political correctness movement may be. Well, as, as you and I know, the progressive left, the Democrat socialists out there, indeed intend to deny us our Second Amendment. In fact, they've already announced plans that if they get a majority, they're going to start the process of repealing the Second Amendment. You know, the NRA has been around since 1871 as a civil rights organization, believing that the Second Amendment is important to preserving the other nine of our Bill of Rights. And what we're looking at today is an effort literally to abolish the NRA. They're treating us like we're a malignancy. And I can tell you right now, the Second Amendment is not a, is not a disease. The NRA is the, there to defend it. And what we're going to do is fight, literally, tooth and nail, all the way to the Supreme Court if we have to. After the Parkland uh, school shooting, which was horrific, and I don't know how anybody could be anything broken-hearted for the uh, just uh, terrible tragedy that it represented. 
But once True. again, as it is in almost every mass shooting situation, the emotional direction of hate and animosity directed toward the NRA was was vivid. Um, because well, it's such an emotional issue, Colonel, how do you, how do you combat that? Well, look, the NRA was used as a cover-up for what happened at Parkland. The Broward County officials who allowed that school to go completely unprotected and then blame the NRA for a murderous rampage and say somehow it was our fault, wrong. And in fact, what they did is tried to cover up the misfeasance, the malfeasance, the nonfeasance, and quite frankly, cowardice of the officials down in Broward County that allowed that to happen. Now, as a part of a positive answer to all of that, the NRA started six years ago a program called School Shield. And what I've done in my tenure is already, as the president of NRA, is we're taking that program across the country. We offer a free, that word free, assessment of the vulnerabilities of a school or a school system. We'll go in there and train assessors on how to look after their school after we're gone. And what we'll do is turn that report over to the school officials and to the sheriff's department. We're not going to announce the vulnerabilities to anybody else. We're not going to hold a press conference on it and let them fix it. And for that, we have grants to help those school systems. There is no other organization on the planet Earth that offers a program to protect kids in school like we do. And you know what? There's school systems that won't use us because we're the NRA. Which is very unfortunate. So let's ask the question. How many mass shootings in America have been carried out by an NRA member? Not one yet. Uh, now that doesn't say, look, at, I'm, I'm trying to double the membership of the NRA governor. So we're out there telling everybody, we've only got 6 million members. We need 12 million members. I suppose it's possible there are people buying memberships who intend to do bad things. Thus far, it has not happened. And my prayer is that it doesn't happen. And of course it isn't. But I think my point is, if, if the NRA gets blamed for shootings, but none of its members have ever carried them out, and in fact, what you just mentioned with the School Shield program, or the Eddie Eagle program to help uh, young people right. understand responsible respect for firearms. Uh, and that leads to the, the next question, and I know we're about out of time, but this is an important one. When some people hear about the NRA, they say, well, but, you know, I, I, I'm not a hunter. Why is it that people don't understand the NRA is not just about hunting and shooting sports, it's something much bigger than that? Well, it is, and, and unfortunately, we've not done enough to get that word out to people. We've tried. Uh, as you know, as, as well as I do, the, there's a lot of hostile media out there. So a good news story like School Shield, or right now, for example, while we're in the midst of a hurricane, right, the NRA is responsible for the legislation for emergency protection because in the aftermath of Katrina, we learned that thousands of people had their firearms confiscated, lawfully held personal firearms collected by the government down in, in, in New Orleans illegally. And so what we did is we passed, and we got passed in legislation initially down in Louisiana and now across the country, emergency protection legislation that says, when the power is out, when the 911 line doesn't answer, you need to have something to protect yourself, your family, and your property. And that won't happen again because of what the NRA did. This NRA is not just about hunting. I'm a hunter. It's not just about going out and, and plinking at the range. The NRA is about protecting the people of this country. And it was, after all, a, an idea that was put into the Constitution, James Madison, God bless you, to protect us from the, the tyranny of government. Colonel, thank you very much. Uh, delight to have you here. Look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. You can learn more about the importance of the Second Amendment and how to be a safely trained and legal gun owner. Just go to nra.org. That's nra.org. Believe me, whether your interest is in hunting, the outdoors, or personal security, the NRA can help you do it safely, sanely, and wisely. Okay, Keith, I'm going to let you shoot your mouth off right now. <laughs> I hear there's some music in the air that's coming up. Oh, you better believe it. Just around the corner, we've got the amazing music of Annie Moses' band. And then Mike has some eye-opening thoughts on Hurricane Florence and America's response on the ramp. Stay tuned. Well, my next guest is a family music band that is named after the siblings' great-grandmother 
and this is Annie, Alex, Gretchen, Jeremiah, Benjamin, and Camille. They're brothers and sisters, and several of them have been musically trained at the esteemed Juilliard School of Music. Their love of family, their unique training in musical diversity creates a truly original sound. I want you to put your hands together and make welcome the Annie Moses Band. I'll tell you, this audience is loving you guys. Well, thank you. It's great to see all of you tonight. And, uh, and they ought to. I love what you guys do. It's so unique and original. Thank you. Uh, I, I know we said that the band was named after your great-grandmother. Yes. But she would have to be looking down from heaven and so proud to see her name affixed to uh, this incredible family music. Well, thank you. I mean, our family and our music is very much tethered to the legacy of Annie Moses, and she 
started this whole family legacy of faith and music and never saw during her lifetime the fruits of what the generations would bring. But now our work is not only to make music, but help pass that legacy on to the next generation of young musicians. As brothers and sisters, obviously you grew up playing. This is not a group of people who just started playing recently. No. Uh, <laughs> several of you went to Juilliard, which yes. it's hard enough to get into. It's even harder to get all the way through. Mm. So y you have the musical chops, but let's talk about family a minute. Mm. Did you guys ever fight growing up, brothers and sisters? Um, sure, there were natural, you know, as brother sister type spats, but my we grew up in a very close knit Christian homeschool family. Yeah. Um, my mother was a very very devoted practice coach, and uh, my parents were award, are award winning songwriters, and mm. so we grew up with music. Um, but my parents really didn't tolerate. Um, they really didn't tolerate us not loving each other. I mean, they kind oh, of just said, if we're going to be Christians, then we yeah. have to live that out. You guys have also been very instrumental in helping young people mm. fall in love with music. You've given over $300,000 through your foundation. Mm. How do you focus that? And, and why is this so important to, to you? Well, you know, the arts are more influential than any other thing in our culture. And if we don't educate a new generation of young artists, then essentially we're going to raise up a whole world of musical suckers. <laughs> and, and, well said. And that is definitely taking place. And so we started a nonprofit called the Annie Moses Foundation. We have a, a large summer festival that happens um, each July. We have over 200 students that come from all over the world mm. to that. Um, we just launched a nine months out of the year conservatory that's got a very intensive artist mentorship program. So this is very much our heart, not only to inspire new artists, um, but to also help navigate the world of the arts and how you do that from a Christian worldview. I'm gonna ask a final question. Mm. When you're playing, sometimes I can't tell if that's a violin or a fiddle uh, going on there. I know it's the same instrument, but when does, the, <laughs> when does that cross over between the fiddle and the violin? Is there a moment we can figure that one out? You know, it's just really the thing that you happen to be playing at the moment, but I like both sides of the, of the coin, don't you? I do, and what I love, I've been on your website, I've listened to samplings of so many of the songs, and it doesn't matter what kind of music a person loves, standards, bluegrass, country, pop, it's all there. You guys do it all, and not many bands can do that. You can, and it's one of the reasons we are so very happy to have you here. Want you to come back, and uh, I hope everybody who is watching and everybody in this audience will get your music, because when they do, they're going to have as much fun as this audience did listening to you tonight. Well, thank you so much, Governor. Thanks for having me. Annie, this thank you. Great. And I want to tell you that for more information about Annie Moses Band's music, their concerts, and their scholarships and training for the next generation of music artists, visit the AnnieMosesBand.com website. AnnieMosesBand.com. That's pretty simple. And we've got a real treat for you. The Annie Moses Band is going to perform another song. What do you think? You like that idea? I like it a lot. So they're going to perform an incredible song called Cherokee. But you need to visit our Huckabee channel on YouTube to enjoy this exclusive performance. So go to youtube.com slash Huckabee on TBN. And while you're there, be sure to hit the button to subscribe. Keith? What Huckabee exclusive do we have coming up? Can't wait. You don't want to miss Mike's straight-to-the-point commentary on the natural disasters we face. It's coming up on The Wrap. More Huckabee is on the way. Well, as fires continue to blaze in California, all eyes turn to the East Coast this week as the Mid-Atlantic prepared for a potential Cat 5 hurricane named Florence. Thankfully, it didn't hit the U.S. with that level of force, but it sure got me thinking. And it's the subject of our wrap tonight. Well, as we wrap things up, our hearts go out to the millions of our fellow Americans who are facing the wrath of Hurricane Florence and the damaging winds, rains, floods, and storm surges that will change the landscape and the lives of its victims and do it forever. Heroic efforts on the part of our first responders, utility workers, and volunteers remind us 
that most Americans are unselfish and compassionate neighbors. Inevitably, there's going to be someone who will attempt to speculate the cause of such a storm, asking why God allowed such a thing. The language of insurance policies actually call hurricanes and floods and tornadoes acts of God. I once refused to sign legislation that used that term because I said it was just wrong to lay blame for a tornado or a flood on God, but then forbid the government to call upon God or reference Him in public prayer. I insisted that we use the terms natural disaster. You see, the Bible reminds us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and the sun shines on the good and the bad. Disasters aren't sent to punish specific people for specific sins. It is a reminder that we do live in a broken world that was broken by all of our sins. Now, that doesn't mean that some people won't try to blame it on someone or even politicize a hurricane. This week, the Washington Post actually wrote in an editorial that President Trump was at fault for Hurricane Florence because he got us out of the Paris Climate Accords. Frankly, the last thing the president needs is for the press to tell him that he's so powerful he can create a hurricane. <laughs> but we all need to remember that no matter how powerful we think we are, we really aren't. And times like this aren't about blaming God, but bowing to him and asking for his help. Well, our thanks to Shannon Bream, Franklin Graham, Colonel Oliver North, and the wonderfully talented Annie Moses Band. I hope you join us next week. We've got Charlie Daniels, Senator Mike Lee, and American manufacturer Paul Wellborn, and much more. Until then, keep praying for all those who are going to be coming through the aftermath of Hurricane Florence, as well as those battling the California wildfires. Thanks for watching us. Hope you have a good night, good weekend, and God bless.